So hello and welcome to Turing's Triple Helix, the podcast channel for the Scottish AI Alliance. I'm Steph Wright, I'm the head of the Scottish AI Alliance, and on today's session, we're going to be talking about AI in the third sector. And with me, I have two fantastic guests. First up, I have John Fitzgerald, who's the Digital Evolution Manager at SCVO, or Scotland's uh, Council for Voluntary Organisations. And we also have Kirsten Urquhart, um, CEO of Young Scott. Hello, both. Hello. Hello. Hello, thank you so much for joining me today. As we are all no doubt aware, AI is everywhere right now. Not a week or right now, actually this week, a day goes by without a big news story about AI. So I'm really looking forward to chatting you both uh, to you both about what AI means to the third sector. Um, so let's kick off with some information about you two. So uh, let's start with Kirsten. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and your role at Young Scott and also a bit about Young Scott? Absolutely. Um, thanks so much, Steph. I'm Kirsten Urquhart. I'm the Chief Executive at Young Scott. Um, Young Scott's the National Youth Information and Citizenship Charity in Scotland. We're supporting young people to thrive and, and make the most of their lives as, the, as they grow up um, in, in Scotland. And that's really about the provision of direct services to young people um, through the Young Scott National Entitlement Card. That's access to opportunities, discounts, um, things that young people should be doing in their lives and, and hopefully making them a wee bit more affordable. Um, but other parts of what we do is around um, youth engagement, um, involving young people in kind of um, the service design, the design of, of policies and approaches that are um, relevant in their lives. But a big part of what we do is we provide youth information and it's about quality assured information on the things that are relevant in young people's lives. So uh, we work predominantly with young people aged 11 to 26. So quite a wide age range. Um, so as you can imagine, um, things like AI have, have had like a huge impact on, on young people's lives and, and their future. So delighted to be having this conversation today. That's brilliant. Thanks very much, Kirsten. And over to you, John. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and your role at SCVO and also about SCVO? Thanks, Steph. It's great to be here. Um, SCVO is the umbrella body for all charities in Scotland. So we've got about three and a half thousand member organisations. And we really exist to support and promote and develop the sector. So that's often about providing advice and guidance, particularly for smaller organisations who may not have um, their own resources and information at hand. It's about services as well. Like we run a payroll service for the voluntary sector as one example. We have a policy team as well who engage with government at a variety of levels to um, promote the interests of the sector. And the particular team that I'm involved in is our digital team. And for quite a while now, the sector has been making more use of digital and technology. And we exist to provide free support, advice and training so that we're a place where the sector can come and get a basic orientation on what technology is and how they can make best use of it in their organisation. So the kind of vision we have is the sector using technology well will be a sector that has a bigger impact and can do more and be more effective and make a positive difference to people's lives. Brilliant. Thank you very much. So leading on from that, uh, SCVO's mission is to support Scotland's vibrant voluntary sector. So how do you think technologies such as AI can particularly help in this mission? Well, I think it's a really interesting question. I think the first thing I wanted to note is that the voluntary sector is dominated by small organisations. So um, it's often micro and small organisations of maybe only one or two people and Nonetheless, those people are doing really important things for the most vulnerable people in society. So I think that's an interesting context, because quite often, if you think in a, a public sector setting, you might imagine 
if you're doing something that's quite vital in a community, you must have a lot of resources behind you. And the answer is you don't. I think one of the really interesting angles on digital in the last 10 years has been technology has got to a stage where people in a fairly um, almost a kind of consumer or a person on the street setting can really use fantastic technology. It's scaled really well. So that's a great opportunity. I think the particular things I think about in relation to AI are the fact that the voluntary sector needs to use information a lot. So that's a big factor. We're all gathering data, even if organizations are doing it on a very small scale with just the people they work with. There's always data being gathered somewhere. That's one piece. And the other piece is about you know using its resources effectively. So if voluntary sector organization can find a way of doing something more efficiently, that means they can direct more of their resources to the front line to help the communities they want to help to achieve their mission more effectively. And I think that's a big um, thing to think about because voluntary sector organizations have never been more pressured in terms of pressure on their income and the level of need they're trying to meet. So technology when it's used well can be a real resource on that front. Absolutely. It's something I always say that like what AI is really good at is helping us do what we as humans do best. And, uh, and, and you know, there are certain things that AI do really well that can, yeah, uh, and that allows us to do our human things very well. So, uh, no, that's brilliant. Thank you very much. We'll obviously delve a bit further into, you know, the challenges facing the voluntary and charitable sector. But over to you, Kirsten, um, what work is Young Scott doing around AI, if at all? Uh, I know you guys do a lot around data. So, and do you feel it's important for young people to engage with AI? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think um, it's vitally important that young people have the opportunity to engage with AI. Um, like you mentioned, there's been an explosion of news stories um, and, and, and tools available that young people will be aware of. And so it's really important to us as an organisation, as a sector, that young people are well informed about what is going on in, in a way that is, is kind of suitable to them and in the places and spaces that they're spending their time. So how are we taking kind of information about AI um, to, to directly to young people? There's a couple of things that, that Young Scott are doing, particularly around that. Um, we have our, our chatbot. We've had a chatbot for a while um, in terms of supporting young people to access um, information in relation to um, the Young Scott National Entitlement Card. So some it's basically kind of around supporting young people frequently asked questions those that support young people um, and, and again like John mentioned it's about resource efficiencies for us in terms of being able to to handle some of those inquiries and that chatbot has been something that we've been developing and, and um, kind of building upon over the past kind of six months or so. I think moreover though we have been um, supporting young people to understand what AI is and, and what it, it could mean. So um, we've been uh, providing young people with TikTok content um, on our, our platform around what is AI, um, reacting to things that have been happening in the news in relation to things like education and exams and chat GBT and, and all of those things that we've all seen. Um, but also looking at you know some of the tools that are already in place for, for young people. So this isn't about you know what's coming. Um, this is about the fact that there's AI tools out there that right now on the platforms that the people are using so on snapchat my ai um tool feature which has been rolled out and, and young people are using snapchat they use it like i would use whatsapp basically they're on there all the time and so um letting them know that it's there but also things like in their settings how to for example clear their data um you know and, and things like that so we're kind of making sure that young people know how to use the tools um uh, or they've got the information about how to use the tools properly so um 
so th this this work that we're doing directly with young people, kind of exploring options for how young people can have more a voice in a space, um, thinking about rights and and um, young people in terms of the design of of AI kind of products and services. Um, but then again, as an organization organization like John said about where are the efficiencies for us as a charity organisation that we can be the most efficient, effective organisation we can be so that we can focus our energies on those direct services for, for young people. So lots of potential, lots of work going on now, but lots of potential as well. Absolutely. Loads covered there and all, all equally important. Uh, you know, the, 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 what you said was really interesting about how this is not something in the future. AI is here. AI tools are out there and people are to some extent, not knowingly using a lot of it. And and one of the things we're really passionate about at the Scottish AI Alliance is that, you know, let's not let technology happen to us. Let's, you know, understand what it is and be able to, you know, especially around data, you know, without data, there's no AI. So having, you know, trying to help people understand where your data goes when you're using this, especially with young people, you know, that they understand that when they're uploading pictures or, you know, uh, or videos of themselves and their friends, that they understand what's happening with this. Because um, because ultimately, you know, it, it could end up not being yours anymore. <laughs> and and, and that's, that's something that I think quite a lot of people don't understand and and it's it's really good to kind of help people be more questioning essentially around where where all their data is going and and like you were saying john you know like the the all the member organizations you work with work with some of the most vulnerable you know uh communities and we need to empower them essentially to live in uh, and and kind of you know take advantage of the digital world in which we now live and and, and you know it's great that both of you are uh, are doing all this so so this leads on nicely to you know my my kind of next question um so what are some of the unique challenges charitable organizations face when it comes to you know technologies like AI, whether it's implementing it or in some cases some are developing it. So, um, and you know, uh, so and you know, deploying it in their services. So, um, over to you, John, and then feel free to kind of go to and fro. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I think probably first and foremost, I think for the voluntary sector, trust is so important. So, trust of the people we work with, trust the people who are providing donations and funding. Um, so that's something that's hard to attain in the first place, but could be easy to lose. So there's a big piece there um, around doing things which make it clear that we are trustworthy and responsible. That's a big piece. I think one of the other challenges maybe coming to, to data in the example is, particularly thinking of small voluntary sector organisations, they'll have brilliantly rich data and insight about the people they're working with, but it's usually quite unusual for them to have kind of broken that data down in a systematic way. So that's one reason why in the voluntary sector, we maybe not talked about AI so much in the past is because a single voluntary sector organization maybe hasn't had a data set or a data approach available to it that would work well with things like say a prediction model or uh, machine learning or that kind of thing. So that's one reason why AI has probably sat in the back burner a wee bit. I think another feature as I've alluded earlier is that within a small voluntary organization, you're not gonna have somebody who's a digital specialist or a scientist or an IT expert. So really what tends to happen is organizations may get occasional outside support. So like, you know, there's programs where you can 
borrow a data scientist for a bit on a short-term basis and that kind of thing. But generally speaking, what they'll be able to make use of is things that are kind of readily available, built into kind of mainstream products. And I think, you know, as we were talking there about the need to understand what's happening to data once you've shared it with a system, that's maybe not something that everybody will be able to really dig into. So what we're looking to do in the work that we do is kind of help people see the possibility, you know, give examples of where it's working well, but help people understand the questions they need to ask and the kind of safeguards that they need to have in place um, as they approach it. Yeah, I, th I think um, just leading on from from um, John's, John's point, I think part of the challenge around um, implementing AI is just really in the sector when you're very focused on um, service delivery and kind of frontline services in a lot of cases, having that capacity and space for thought and to be curious and to explore and to read and to, to, to listen to podcasts and things, it's very, very limited. And um, I think it is that that um, capacity issue in the in the sector for being able to to be to, to kind of build on curiosities really and, and and explore kind of what those tools are and, and like John said without that dedicated kind of digital or tech or, or data expertise particularly within um, smaller organizations it can be really challenging really challenging to do that so I think as well there's you know there's a lot of oh AI is not quite for us and I can't see how that would be implemented and, and that ability to see how um how those links could be made and and what um efficiencies could be could be made as part of, of implementing i think are, are are one of the biggest challenges really in the sector so i, I think it's not necessarily a, a lack of will it's a, a lack of capacity and a lack of of resource um i think one of the other things for me is that quite often in the sector the end game is not kind of profit um, so it's it's about um getting that investment into the sector um to it is sometimes more challenging um particularly for early adoption of technologies however i sometimes think in the third sector we are the most innovative because we have to do a lot with very little and so for me there's kind of some big opportunities for um investment and particularly when we think about social good and social impact um, working with the sector i think there's more gains to be to be made I think lastly, around, around the kind of data point, I think organisations in the third sector have a wealth of data that they probably don't even realise that they have about, about their users. And what we know about things like AI and, and you know, it's it's fed by our data, you know, it's, it's, it's answering our questions with our data. And so we need to get better as a sector about thinking about how we are surfacing some of that data because there's efficiencies to be made around um, sharing information and good practice. Um, really for the benefit of our um, service users. And I think that um, that's something as a sector, there's definitely challenges around, but I think tools, AI tools, and um, you know, th there's opportunities around, around surfacing some of that as well. Absolutely. I mean, both of you make, um, you know, fantastic points around, you know, that the, the capacity is, I think it's quite a big challenge for, say the third sector and also say like in healthcare settings health and social care it's like you know technologies like ai can help with the pressures but when you're under pressure you don't have time to innovate you don't have time to try something new and in many of these cases the stakes are high you know um you know that your users 
it, it, you could have a major impact if you don't get it right. And, and you know, and I can understand some of the, you know, there there's obviously the will, but I assume there is also, you know, reticence in terms of that, you know, like a reluctance to, because if you get it wrong, you know, then, then you could, you could, you know, have an impact. But then at the same time, if you get it right, you could improve your services and help more users than you otherwise would. And I guess also, you know, the, it's, uh, it's quite interesting you were saying about, uh, you know, it, it's uh, uh, that lots of uh, organizations perhaps think, oh, but AI is not right for us because we don't really have anything that could do the AI. And it's quite interesting because I've been having uh, discussions and chats about, you know, organizations as a whole, businesses and things. There's a lot of FOMO going on at the moment with AI, you know, fear of missing out, you know, hearing the, all this stuff. And, you know, there are lots of organizations that are also on the flip side of that, like rushing into it, kind of going, oh my God, you know, it must it must help us in some way when that's not necessarily the case, you know, when A, they don't have the data or A, they don't have the resource to support the implementation of a technology like AI. I heard this horror story the other day of apparently some organizations just got rid of tons of its people and just replaced it with essentially like a kind of chat GPT function, but they have no in-house tech to actually, you know, kind of support that. And I'm just like, oh, and apparently in that meeting setting, everyone else was like going, oh my God. So I think, you know, it's it's both extremes, isn't it? The the kind of, oh no, no, that's not for us. Or, oh my God, that must be for us. Whereas, you know, like really a, a more measured, more considered approach needs to be taken. Obviously we'll kind of talk a bit about, you know, what kind of support is out there, but, but essentially AI has a potential to do so much but it needs to be done in the right way. And 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 that's very much, you know, uh, applies to everything, really. Um, but yeah, any more thoughts on that before we kind of move on to it? The, I mean, the challenges, you know, the, the you know, um, digital access, you know, um, you know, and kind of digital literacy. Uh, these are all topics that, you know, are not new. And, and you know, with the advent of technologies like AI, uh, it, it, it kind of compounds that initial challenge that the sector has. So it'd be great to hear any more thoughts on that. So I think the digital literacy angle is a great one. I mean, I think we have a digital inclusion team that work as well and that their focus is helping organizations who want to upskill people to enable them to be connected with digital technology and use it well, using it in a way which enhances their lives. And I think that's already difficult in some ways because you know if you're a regular user of technology it's kind of invisible and you're like well it, this is so easy but if you're encountering it for the first time it's pretty challenging and you know already there's social justice issues where if people are required to use technology to exercise their rights or access services that promotes equality so there's a big need there the work that I do is a bit about digital literacy on an organizational scale so like our organizations getting digital is and I think it's really interesting with AI and things like chat GPT because they people have a sort of perception of what they are a superficial one but it's like really rough so that I think is quite striking it feels weird to be in a setting where you've got something which to use the kind of cliche is you know people are talking to their hairdressers about it people are talking about down the pub that doesn't really happen all the time with technology and yet the kind of messaging that people are picking up in the media or the way that people are kind of experiencing it is kind of false in the sense of they don't really know what's going on they don't really understand the limitations and that i think is quite striking to me so i mean we've been doing quite a few 
blogs to try and break it down a bit and say, well, there's a lot of possibility here, but you need to understand there's some important limitations. And it's finding that balance because, as you know, I'm sure, Steph, the debate can get quite polarised on like, we're all going to be upgraded into some kind of utopia or we're all going to get turned into paperclips next week and there's very little middle ground. And I think what we like to do is to say to people, this is there, there's value and use in it, but you need to have some safeguards in mind as you approach it. And I think we do that at the organisation scale and I think it is going to be important to do that with individual people as well so that as they're encountering these tools embedded into other technology, they have a sense of what it's doing and what they might need to be careful about, that kind of thing. I mean, yeah, I think just just building on that, I mean, you know, the, the, we, we know in society there's, there's the, the, the digital exclusion kind of exists to this day, but but actually, um, look, I mean, for, for children, young people, digital technologies are, are part of the infrastructure of their lives. Um, that's no longer an option for, for children and, and young people. And actually, it's actually kind of crucial to their development and prospects as we as we kind of, you know, think about education and the world of work, but also the way that they spend their time, social lives, gaming, you know, all of all of these things. And, and so um, there's definitely there's there's risks that come along with with all of, of that. Um, but actually, there's a point when we have to say, well, it's actually about us kind of managing those risks and and being quite, you know, having conversations about what those risks are. Um, but you're absolutely right, John. I think one of the, the challenges, particularly for children, young people, is that if that divide exists, it feels a lot wider often, you know, if, if um, not just from a um, kind of access point of view, but actually a kind of emotional well-being, mental health, kind of friendships, peers, peer relationships, all of those kind of things. And we see already in, in the education system, there's a huge reliance already on on kind of digital technologies. And so I think um, for me, you know, definitely the emphasis on that should not be on on children and young people to kind of manage that risk. It's about how do we engage with um, the sector? How do we engage with companies um, taking a kind of rights-based approach to, to the design of, of tools um, so that we are not just young people, our citizens are are, are less at, at risk. And, you know, I'm, I'm thoughtful about, um, you know, the Five Rights Foundation, they've got their kind of child rights by design, kind of user appropriate design code, age appropriate design code, and and a lot of the work that's going on around, around that. And I think, um, you know, it's really important for us to be, um, as a sector, kind of aware of that, you know, bringing ethics into everything that we do as a sector in terms of how we develop. And I think as a sector, we're particularly good at that because users are our, you know, the, our, our kind of service users, we're, we're here to do good things for our, our service users. And so I think we we always lead with that kind of ethical approach. But um, I, I do think that there's a duty on us as a, a sector to make sure that, that um, you know, from, from a children and young people's perspective, that they are well informed so that they can demand things of of, of tools and, and those that are developing those tools and services like our own that are that are creating um creating kind of services for them. So um but but I, there is definitely a, a concern about those that are already furthest from services and those from furthest from access becoming further excluded as we are in this kind of AI race. And and Steph, your point about that kind of there's lots of excitement and enthusiasm and there is no doubt um you know, when you're in a sector as well, in any sector, there's elements of competition in terms of marketplace and funding, all those kind of things that to be kind of further forward and to innovate is always an attractive proposition. But um, 
if that means that your service users are becoming further away from your services, then it's something we have to be really kind of mindful of. So um, it's there's risks and, and challenges, but we have to be realistic about the world that, um, that we live in. Um, and yeah, so... I don't have an answer to that, really. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, absolutely. It, it, it's a really good point because I was just having this discussion the other day where there's currently a lot of focus around upskilling and reskilling the current workforce uh, for the digital data AI revolution. But I, I find that there isn't enough discourse around how are we preparing our children and young people for this world this is their world like you know like you said they're all ultimately digital natives you know because this this is the world they're growing up in it's just like you know yesterday my daughter was saying oh our, our smart board was broken and, and i was like you know when mommy and daddy were at school that we didn't have smart boards our boards were just boards and she just looked at me like what are you talking about <laughs> and, and so it, it is that thing you know where technology is part of their lives and are we doing enough to prepare them to enter, you know, an, a, you know, a, a society, a workplace where, you know, the things of, you know, there's a lot of chat about job losses and stuff, but there are new jobs, new jobs coming. The jobs that will be the jobs available when they come into the workforce, we have no idea what they will be really. You know, the, the, the children of today, by the time they, they are, of an age to enter the workforce. We don't know what those jobs are. Literally new jobs have popped up in the last six months, like, you know, generative AI prompt engineers, you know, like who would have thought six months ago that was a job and, uh, and things like that. And, and, and so, so I think that's really interesting. And then just linking in that, you know, I think I'd be remiss to not mention like, you know, the work we're doing with Children's Parliament and uh, the Alan Turing Institute, uh, our children and AI project, um, the first phase around exploring children's rights in AI, you know, has just concluded. We have the report on um, uh, shared out in the wild now, but we're into phase two and three about, you know, it's, Actually, one of the key takeaways. I think you were there, Kirsten, when the kid, when the the children's investigators were at the Scottish AI Summit. Uh, John, you might have been there too, where one of the kids, you know, said, "Just ask us," you know. And I think that's one of the key takeaways. And in phase two and three, we're going to explore how that actually looks like in reality. How how do we make that happen, where children and young people can have their voices heard? in and influence how AI products are developed, deployed, and how AI policy is pulled together. So I think, you know, that's that's a really, really interesting point. But um but yeah, I mean that kind of links into a bit, you know, the the next question, you know, around collection of data. You know, like I said earlier, there's no AI without data. And specifically for you, Kirsten, you know, working with young people, children and young people, the collection of data is obviously, you know, there's lots of guidelines around safeguarding and, you know, privacy, et cetera. Uh, you know, an interesting question, you know, I guess you touched on it a bit, you know, are the risks worth the benefits? It's, it's a big question. <laughs> and, and I suppose, <laughs> um, but I, I think, you know, I would say again, there's risks with, with anything that we take. And I think that, that, um, you know, we're beginning to see that the, there will undoubtedly be benefits for for kind of children and young people in in the future in terms of, like you said, the the kind of roles, the the systems, the things that they can they can be involved in. I think um, there needs to be a lot more work done around the kind of education of it, so that young people kind of understand um, 
what they're signing up to, like you say about sharing kind of images and things as well. But also I think it's important to get young people's perspectives on that. I think we bring a very, you know, as adults, we bring a certain perspective to that. And and for some young people, there's almost a bit of an inevitability about things to do with data. They're just like, oh yes, I'll just click this terms and conditions because they're going to do it anyway and it doesn't really matter. And, da, da, da. and so I think there's definitely... Um, perhaps but become a bit of apathy around around that and so this it's really important for us as a sector to be ensuring that young people have the information um about the kind of settings the things that they are in control of and i think there's a lot more you think about the way kind of you know the web3 technology about more kind of devolved ownership of data and i think there's lots of um or lots of kind of personal ownership of data and i think there's lots happening in that space that there's opportunities for us to educate i think one of the challenges again is how do um, you know, how does an organisation like Young Scott, which is focused on supporting young people with quality shared information, get access to that information themselves about what what does this mean and who do we speak to and what are those connections? And I think that's part of the one of the challenges for the sector is about how we make those connections to make sure that we can then pass the, that on to, to our users. I think the risks are the risks risk worth the benefits, you know, to be determined, I, I suppose. But also, I think it's forcing us to do some really deep thinking about how we operate. And it's not just about, you know, the technology is just the technology, isn't it? It's, it's what aids us to, to support our users. The technology is not the end game here. Um, and, and what this is doing, if you think about things, particularly in the education system, thinking about how young people learn, when you think about these tools, it's, um, you know, the benefits may outweigh the risks in terms of changing the way that we educate our children. It might be um, changing the way that you enter the, the job the, the world of of employment and so I, I think your point though the work that the children's parliament did is, is absolutely fantastic and I think that point about asking young people um, is, is so important because I think they do bring a completely different perspective their worlds are different they are growing up in a different world than, than what than, than what we did and so I think it's really important to, to ask that question so um I suppose the answer to that question is, is it depends and we shall see, um, but we will do everything we can as a sector to make sure we're supporting young people in that process and always advocating for a rights-based approach to the design of any products and services. Absolutely. And I think it ties back to John's point earlier. Ultimately, it's about trust as well. Like, you know, I, I think, you know, we need to uh, provide trusted information out there uh, and, and it's through organizations like yourselves you know with your user groups that we can hopefully do that um john do you want to come in on any of what kirsten just said um yeah well, just a quick point about children young people so my son's in his first year at school right now and i got chat gpt to write a little story about a hedgehog and a public procurement contract um so they find a contract in the forest and build a little shelter and they get a big uh, contract for it and he listened to me read the story and said that's a lovely story who wrote it he immediately jumped onto the kind of killer question which is quite interesting and the other thing that i've been thinking about recently is he's obviously in his first year at school to get into grips with writing and it strikes me that with education and generative ai i think one big challenge is a short-term move might be to say well let's get back to pencil and paper so we can be confident about what students are actually absorbing themselves. But then you think about, well, what is the workplace going to be like in 15 or 20 years? I suspect there'll be few pencils. And so I think that is will be so challenging in an education setting is you have to kind of get to grips with things really changing 
but try and find the kind of core skills that will be valuable, not just right now today, but but down the line. And I think the kind of parallel, I guess, is what we end up doing is we help organizations in that connection. You know, they know their work, what their priorities, what they need to do in their communities. They need help to understand the landscape of technology. And that's what we look to do is to kind of make that connection so that because what we know is technology vendors and technology developers won't always have the needs of the voluntary sector front of mind. They'll maybe have some hunches or guesses about it. So it's really important for us to be in that middle place of kind of helping the sector understand how is this relevant to them? What are the particular risks they face? What are the most obvious next steps to take? So it's that kind of role helping to explain it in a kind of clear and trustworthy way. Fantastic. And actually, my next question on my list, I think we've actually touched on all through what we've been talking about, you know, that Scotland's AI strategy is all it is centered on trustworthy, ethical and inclusive AI. We've we've touched on most of those really, um, you know, uh, throughout what we said uh, in, in, in previous answers. But just wanted to give you a chance to come in with any other thoughts around that. You know what? Uh, obviously, trustworthy, ethical and inclusive. I hope everyone can agree that those are great aims to have in terms of the use of AI. Um, and, you know, are there any particularly kind of poignant elements of that for the, uh, for the third sector? I mean, I, I think the, the element of trust, I think, is is really, really important. Um, and and also that in, inclusive piece is, is so important. Um, I think that, um, look, again, there's no getting away from it. In, in, full inclusivity is hard and it takes hard work and it takes effort and it takes intention to make sure that what we are doing is, is kind of fully inclusive. And so I think particularly what we know about, like going back to the point about what data is out there, what data is available that, that feeds into a lot of um, a, Kind of large language tools or machine learning. It's about um, making sure that the, the sectors are working together to make sure that we are um, we're being as inclusive as possible. And, and and like we said about not widening the gap, because quite often the 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 people that engage with third sector organisations and, and charities are those that are quite often furthest from services. And so, how do we make sure that we're we're not widening the gap? So I think it's um, absolutely imperative that that um as a as a strategy for Scotland as a as a um, culture and as a, a in terms of the values of us um as a as a sector that that being kind of um in, inclusive and, and trusted is, is absolutely kind of paramount paramount to that so thank you John yeah I'd really echo what Kirsten shared, I think what was in my mind is the people the voluntary sector are working with are often in really exceptional circumstances. So they're people that other systems may be already failed or they've got particular challenges that regular provision isn't working for them. So I think one challenge there is if you've got um, tools, be they predictive models or auto-generated content or whatever they might be, if they're built based on the kind of the broader piece, they may miss important features of people's circumstances. And I think that's you know, one of the big worries of chat GPT is it can very quickly generate plausible looking content. But as soon as you apply a bit of expertise and maybe some real world fact checking to it, you see it's full of holes. So that's a big worry. I mean, I do wonder if maybe all of this kind of thinking maybe starts people thinking about, you know, what would a you know voluntary sector 
pool data sets look like, for example, because as I was saying earlier, I think every organization will have its own very rich data puddle, if you like. Um, it's probably only going to have a few thousand records, but we'll have a lot of insight about particular people. And might there be ways to kind of safely um, combine that, you know, in the way that it gets done in the healthcare setting where population data can get safely pooled and used in a responsible way. I think the challenge is, you know, healthcare data is one thing. There's already a bit of a kind of culture around that. It's a bit different if you talk about people's lives and things that are happening to them. And I think, you know, what we tend to find is because voluntary sector organisations, they're very connected into the context they're in. So they think about their work and organise their work around the people they're helping. They're not thinking about, oh, there's a, a master data set I'm going to need to contribute to down the line. And we've all we've made the point a few times about capacity. There's not going to be a kind of data scientist sitting sitting there saying, right, we're doing brilliant work. I'll make sure all the data's um, well categorised and coming through in an organised fashion. But I think it may, you know, I feel that this may be a good inflection point where we're thinking, right, if we move to approaches that are very much based on data, making use of it, there are probably arguments for shifting the way that we. Um, collect and analyze data to a different level. Yeah, that's great. I love that term of data puddle. I love it. <laughs> and I think, you know, quite a lot of organizations really just that that is what they have, you know. Um, but uh, no, I mean, we've obviously talked about ChatGPT throughout this because essentially ChatGPT is the it's the catalyst for so many conversations around AI at the moment. And, you know, uh, a year ago, no one knew about it, you know, and uh, and now it's what everyone talks about, uh, you know, across the sectors, across levels of society, everything. And so, you know, th there's obviously dominant narratives around chat GPT that the media keep perpetuating. Uh, so I don't think I have to repeat any of those. I'd, I'd rather not, to be honest. Uh, but but uh, what I, I want to find out from you guys, um, you know, the the people you work with, the organizations you work with, what's been the general feel? Are they interested, excited or worried about this? Uh, it'd be great to kind of get that feel. John? Um, well, one area that's been coming up as an early kind of question has been around uh, funding bids. So in the voluntary sector, there's always somebody somewhere writing a funding bid. <laughs> because um, funding is so important to organisations and often in the process of doing that it's not just about the kind of the reality of what you do but you know translating that into 20 paragraphs of polished prose so that's been an immediate thing that people have started thinking about now I was actually in an event with a, a room full of funders yesterday and basically introducing them to chat GPT and some of the things they might want to reflect on First thing was over half the room hadn't used it at all. And then when we did a live demo, they could immediately see, well, there's problems here in the sense that this could generate something that looks superficially quite compelling, but it's not connected to the facts in the right way. And the worry then is what's an ethical way to treat that kind of result? You might as a funder say, well, let's think about deploying a tool to try and catch it. Of course, you know that they don't really work all the time. What do you do if it generates 10 results that say it looks like these bids might have had chat GPT involved? What do you do? Do you automatically exclude them? Uh, do you uh, go and contact the applicants and say, can we talk about how you've put this material together? 
big questions. So basically, we had a really good discussion and um, they could sort of see um, some potential, but they could also see lots of pitfalls. So we're still at the asking lots of questions stage. And I think that's a particular kind of interesting case because it feels like quite an important piece of communication. Um, but I think in lots of other settings, you know, even think of my own rules, so I provide specialist digital advice. There are some things I have to say which are kind of quite boilerplate. So quite often I'll have a conversation and go, right, well, you need kind of the obvious points around cybersecurity or um, these things that I've said to 20 other people in the past few months. You can see there that, you know, maybe that means a scope to use a tool to help with that. But the problem is that of sense checking and I'm making sure you're not inadvertently passing on something which misses important points. Um, so, yeah, that's the kind of so. And I think thinking of the voluntary sector as a whole, you know, Kirsten, I'm sure would have example. You a lot of the voluntary sector are in the business of providing information at scale and it can feel quite compelling to think, well, what if we could reach 20 times the number of people or respond at any time of day and night with something that's more than an online guide. But the big questions for me around how do you safeguard that and make sure there's quality control. And you could do that in a very narrow way by saying only take responses from this um, library of data. That could be one way. But I think you're still going to need somebody reviewing stuff. And I think the, the for me, the big fear factor is around it feels a very human thing to say once you've seen 25 responses that look pretty much bang on you're going to stop reading <laughs> unless you're very very uh, diligent and I think that's a worry but I'll pass to Kurt. Yeah I mean I think um, I think in, in the sector what I'm getting a sense of is is that kind of curiosity but but kind of a, a bit reluctant as well in terms of um, trying to understand kind of what it means and and how it might impact and I think that um, it, it's interesting that I think the you know John much like you're saying about the kind of funders that it is met with that kind of caution and and concern but actually for an organization you could see from from that resource efficiency efficiency perspective that something a tool like chat gpt becomes very attractive if you're putting in multiple funding bids and, and things so there's definitely a balance there isn't there about that kind of um the kind of push and pull of of that in different kind of areas um you know i think there's lots of great examples of how it's already being used i know um particularly kind of some smaller third sector organisations that are supporting young people are using things like ChatGPT to schedule their tweets for the next kind of three three weeks and and you know and and being able to 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 have that all in place so so organizations that have got really limited capacity are able to use it from a kind of communications kind of perspective as well um i've already had conversations with people about beginning to, to imagine you know be curious and imagine the possible about um, particularly in relation to that shared data and and how we do more for for young people in scotland with that kind of shared data so i think people are curious about it um I think that there is that caution around the idea of it's going to come and take everybody's jobs and particularly in a sector that's already quite challenged and a uh, resource um, capacity. Um, for me, it's how we change that narrative to um, it allows us to potentially be more efficient and effective and redeploy those people into other parts of the organisations or the sector that enables that frontline delivery. But I don't think we're seeing enough examples yet of how that is working in practice. And I think that's one of the challenges at the moment. You're seeing it in these spaces that feel a wee bit re removed and detached from your day to day realities. Um, 
But I certainly know, for example, that, you know, from a young Scott perspective, we've done full team sessions. We've done a session with our board on emerging technology and, and really getting people into that headspace to start being open um, to what the possibilities might be. Because as we've seen over the last um, few months, it, like we, we, we described it as a bit of an explosion and it really has been. And so I think as a sector, one of the challenges is about being left behind or other area sectors coming in doing things more efficiently you know faster cheaper all of the above and um therefore it's really it's really crucial so i think a, a, a cautious curiosity and i think also you've got lots of young people that are really excited about it it's you know any merging new technology is exciting i i naturally am I get excited about innovation and I have to say I, I, I enjoy kind of spending time looking and thinking about the art of the possible but it's a luxury to do that you don't often get a huge amount of time to do that so thank you very much um wow I think we've covered like the whole breadth of things in this chat actually so but but to close off I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you for I guess in a way a call to action you know the two phases to it one to our listeners especially those working in the third sector what advice would you give them um and you know where would you suggest they go to find out more information or seek support uh here I'm going to give a plug to the Scottish AI playbook where we're trying to pull together in one place all the useful resources we love to work with SEVO and Young Scott to kind of have maybe a third sector info hub if that's a thing um uh but then on the other side is what would you like us to help you with? Like, what what's your call of act, call to action for us? So, if, if you could just give us a quick overview, that'd be great, and then we'll close off. I I think my call to action to the to the sector is about um, kind of yeah, be curious and and going with a, an open mind. And I think um, partnership and collaboration is a is a huge part of the sector. And I think there's lots of people that are willing and able and and keen to have kind of conversations. And I think. Um, the, the great thing about our sector is, is that ability to bring people together. So I think let's explode it together. That would be my my kind of call to action, which is around, um, yeah, that we're not in this alone. And so let's let's think about um, what we can do, lead with a kind of ethical approach and let, let's think about um, how we can do more for our our, our service users um, using, using this approach. Um, I think there's lots of great insight out there. We mentioned the the Children's Parliament report, particularly on the impact of uh, you know on AI on on children. Um, the playbook is a great space. Um, I also spend a lot of time um, on TikTok. You know, there's different ChatGPT prompts, different things you can learn a lot from other people. So that kind of peer community around um, AI, I think, is is growing. Um, but obviously, you know, you, you have to to go into that with caution as well. So I think there's lots of great um, resources out there to to be used. And I think my my um, ask of, of of you, Steph, is and, and your team is, like I said, there's not a huge amount of kind of examples of 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 kind of good practice um, about kind of supporting the sector to understand what this what this means and the art of the possible. So I think um, the opportunity to provide that kind of thought leadership in the sector, which you're already doing, but but making those connections. And, and giving us some some real life examples of, of how other organizations have used it, I think would be really helpful um, to the sector. Thanks. Thank you. Noted. And over to you, John, for the final word. Um, it's quite similar to what Kirsten shared, but I think it's that balance between playing but also understanding. Because I think for me, what I find is when I've done activities on this, if you've got a chunk of people in the room who haven't experienced something like ChatGPT yet or other AI tools, once they see an action, their thinking really shifts a lot because they see, well, this could be really pervasive and 
quite consequential. So I think having that play is important because then people, rather than kind of hearing about it, they're encountering it themselves and having their own response. But it's then also having the chance for people to kind of learn from good, solid sources about what's actually going on. And that feels really important because I think without that, you can get sort of caught up in the magic of it and um, let your ideas run away with you or make some unsigned judgments. And I think that one there, I think Kirsten mentioned, you know, talking within the team as well is really helpful because that can often help because you might have somebody who's quite on board with it, has tried quite a bit, somebody else who's a bit more cautious. And then you can think through some of the unintended consequences because I think that's the challenge really is um, this can become so widespread so quickly. It's thinking about well, what might be the consequence six months or a year down the line if we start working this way. I think the other piece on a kind of call to action, I think, is I'd love the sector to move from being a sort of a user of these technologies to a shaper of them as well. And I think that's really important. And that can happen both on quite a local scale in terms of, you know, our own data use and things like that, but also feeding in really important points about ethics and inclusion and so on and so forth. And I think, as you said, Steph, the AI playbook, I think would be a great resource um, at the minute, everybody's still in that really learning very quickly phase, but I think it'd be great to see that there as a longer term. And these kind of conversations as well. So we have a, a regular monthly call called DigiShift, and I think we're going to have an AI theme on that in July again. So it's really going through, keep having the conversations and you know thinking about these implications and how the sector can really play a part in it as well as just you know picking up what's coming down the the track from uh, tech companies but actually having a positive input as well that's brilliant thank you so much to you both uh for today and and i do like that let's 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 it's a, let's have the third sector aim to not just be users but to be shapers of this technology and i think that's a brilliant call to action to end on so thank you so much kirsten and thank you so much john for joining us today and uh, we look forward to continuing this conversation out with this podcast thank you very much both thanks very much thank you